Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, I have an LDS author on the podcast today to talk about her book, at Desert Book. The name of the book is Divine Quietness, Finding Meaning, meaning When Heaven is Silent. And my guest is Emily Robinson Adams. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you, Richard, for having me. I'll just um, read a description that's um, on the website about the book and then also one of the reviews, listeners, so you can get more of an idea before we turn it over to Emily. Um, quote, do you ever feel your sincere, heartfelt prayers are ignored or met with silence? Do you wonder why a loving God would ever refuse to answer? Divine quietness explores the reason God sometimes answers our prayers with silence in spite of our best efforts, through the lens of her own experiences and drawing on literature from many faith traditions, Emily Robinson Adams discusses new ways of thinking about faith, doubt, and divine quietness. This thoughtful book will help you learn to rethink your assumptions underlying what it means to have faith and how to connect with God, even in quietness. And then, listeners, I wanted to read a review. This is a review that was posted in mid-March on Amazon. Adams brings her heart and soul into this beautiful book. She does not waste a single word. This short book contains wisdom, honesty, and vulnerability. Adams is direct about her experience and invite readers to take what is helpful, leaving the rest. She carefully emphasizes this is her journey and expounds on what has been helpful for her. She brings a variety of sources from a myriad of sources and adds richness to her work. For anyone thinking about faith or feeding like faith can be oversimplified at times. Adams demonstrates the complexity of faith and the power of hope. And uh, just a little bio that I found on LDS Living and Amazon. Emily Robinson Adams is the married mother of three children as a practicing appellate attorney. She received her undergraduate degree in linguistics from Brigham Young University and her JD from the University of Minnesota Law School. She worked for judges on the Minnesota Court of Appeals and the Federal District Court for the District of Minnesota before returning to Utah. She is, the, she is a partner at the Appellate Group, a boutique law firm focusing on appeals. Emily grew up in Colorado and now lives in Davis County. She's been married about 15 years. She's in her mid-30s. And um, listeners, I'm just really excited. This book was published by Desert Book. We'll link in the show notes to the Desert Book link where you can buy it and the Amazon link. Um, but I just like books about um, people sharing their own experiences and getting personal revelation. And I love the words you put together, and I hope you talk about this divine quietness. No one in my lifetime, Emily, has ever put those two words together. I think it's beautiful. And that's the reality of how personal revelation works sometimes. So we said a prayer, listeners, before we started that this would be helpful for you and in your um, journey to receive personal revelation in your life. And with that, I'll turn it over to Emily to add any more context or just go ahead and talk about the book. Thank you, Richard, so much for such a kind introduction. Um, <clears throat> Divine Quietness was a book that I wrote about two years ago after I had experienced a pretty significant faith crisis. I grew up in the church. Um, my parents were members. 
the church was always a part of my life and faith came easily to me. It really did. Um, although I knew about difficult parts of history and difficult policies, I decided that I could always keep the faith. You know, I just, I just believed. And, um, but I was really something that really bugged me for a long time since my teenagerhood was that I really struggled getting direct answers from God on things. So I would ask God a direct question and I wouldn't get an answer. And, you know, growing up in the church, we're taught that you ask God these questions. You ask them about things about, you know, your, your life and your mission and marriage, and kids and jobs. And you ask them direct questions about what you should do. And I asked God a lot of direct questions as I was growing up. And with one exception, never got an answer. So I opted in my teenagerhood and 20s to just move forward, move forward in the church, move forward believing in the Book of Mormon. I asked that question multiple times, of course, never got an answer. Um, you know, I, I married my husband, we had kids, I went to law school, did all these things. Um, but it still just kind of bugged me that I, I couldn't get a direct answer. But sometimes I'd go to church and there would be people all the time that were getting answers to direct questions. So in 2018, President Nelson gave a talk at a conference where he said that it wouldn't be possible to spiritually survive without the guiding influence of the Holy Ghost. And I took that and thought about it and said, well, if this is going to be um, for entering a period of time where there's going to be a lot of confusion, it seems to me that a really important part of receiving revelation is being able to ask God a direct question and get an answer on it. You know, if somebody's writing something or I don't know, there's some policy that you're really concerned about. How important is it that you can ask God this direct question and you can get an answer? So I kind of stood on that for a while. And in 2019, I devised a plan where if I could, I thought that if I could figure out how to, God, how to, get, how to, how to get God to answer one direct question, that I could come up with a formula that I could then apply to all direct questions in the future, and I would have solved my problem. So I decided I would ask God a really straightforward question that didn't involve anybody's agency. It was just a straight up, is the Book of Mormon true? I have asked that question many times, took Moroni's promise many times, never got an answer. So I had this plan, and in 2019, um, the last six weeks of the year, I, wrote, I read the entire Book of Mormon front to back. And because, you know, President Nelson talks about good revelation is generally preceded by good and you know, good information. So I read it front to back. And then in January of 2020, I knelt down and prayed and I got nothing. And um, I, I prayed again. And I got nothing. And it went on for a short period of time. Um, and I just felt the only way I can describe it is I just felt that everything went quiet. I didn't get an answer to this prayer. And then I felt like, the spirit just disappeared. God disappeared. And um, I felt like my faith literally crumbled overnight. So I, I, I never had an experience where I never felt like I had angels or I had, you know, really close um, experiences with heaven. But I certainly felt the spirit up to that point. You know, I'd go to church and feel something or I would give a talk or a lesson. I'd feel prompted. And, you know, so I certainly felt the spirit. But at that point, I just felt like it completely went away. And I just felt abandoned and betrayed and confused. And it, it's hard to describe, but I just felt that everything disappeared. God disappeared, the spirit disappeared. So um, for a lot of months, it, it, it kind of, it created a pretty significant depression. And it took me a lot of months to figure out that that's what I was feeling. Um, I was feeling a lot of grief, a lot of sadness, a lot of betrayal, a lot of anger. Um, and then in the summer, uh, I realized that I was also feeling a lot of fear 
because I was I was visiting one of my clients in a, in in the state prison and had a panic attack there, and uh, which I had never experienced in my life, and um, so I realized I was experiencing and feeling a lot of fear, a lot of enormous fear about God. So I had these feelings like God can't exist, but if God does exist, God is horrible and fearful and and angry and terrible, and. Um, so I just was in this space for a lot of months and I couldn't, I had a hard time really bringing anybody into that space with me because I, I didn't really understand what I was feeling. I didn't understand what I was thinking. Um, a couple months into it, I talked to my husband about it. Um, about eight months into it, I talked to my parents about it, but I really wasn't very open with very many people about it because I, I just couldn't understand what was going on. And I believe it was in August August or early September of that year, um, my Relief Society president asked me to write something for our ward newsletter. I lived in Utah, so during COVID, when they shut down churches, they also didn't do any virtual church, no virtual Relief Society, no virtual sacrament, no nothing. So it had been a lot of months uh, where we hadn't had any like formal church meetings. And my Relief Society president asked me to you know, kind of begin communicating with the Relief Society again by writing a Relief Study, like a little blurb for the Relief Study newsletter, because I was a Relief Study teacher. And I sat down and I said, well, I can't say how awesome COVID was because this has been terrible. Like, everything has been so terrible. This whole, like, I don't really know if I want to stay with God. I, I don't really like God right now. Um, I can't say that scripture study has been good because it's been awful. Like, everything has been awful. So I wrote this little blurb and basically said that I felt that my faith had fallen apart when I was trying to hold on to memories because there were undoubtedly times in my life where I had felt that God was external, that something external to me was working on me. And I couldn't deny that. Um, so I sent out that thing to my release really study president and I said, if this isn't okay, then I can write something else. And she said, it's perfect. So she sent it out about a week later and there were two people that reached out in my board and two people that I knew um, and Good, amazing people. Based on what she was hearing me say that maybe I was experiencing some depression also and that you know, if I had any inclination to go see someone or talk to someone that I might want to schedule an appointment soon because it was there would probably be three months out. And she said, you know, you can always cancel, but at least get it on the calendar. You know, 90% of the work is getting in the door. <laughs> and so just, just try and get yourself in the door. So I listened to her uh, because she didn't, tell me that I was broken. She didn't, you know, tell me that I had to go see a therapist, you know, nothing like that. It was just all very loving and inviting. So I went and I scheduled an appointment with a therapist and they were of course three months out, but I was, it, it got me thinking about, okay, maybe there's something else going on in addition to these spiritual struggles that I need to figure out. And then I went and I talked with this second woman and she was wonderful and she had felt that God had left also and she had some, some challenging life circumstances she was working through. But between these two women, we just started walking and talking and it was really wonderful to be with people that experienced what I was experiencing. And I could say things to them that I really couldn't say anywhere else. You know, I could express my anger towards God and feeling betrayed and abandoned without them freaking out about it. And I could talk with them about how it was risky and painful to hope. And they understood. So I was, I, I, so that was what, like the fall 
of 2020. And I went in and saw a therapist later in that fall, went in and also saw a nurse practitioner and got some medication just to give me that extra help in applying what my therapist was teaching me to do. And a lot of what my therapist was teaching me to do was to really examine my thoughts carefully and, uh, you know, take a look at them and see kind of what things are true, what things aren't, you know, challenge them. So in January of 2021, I got to a point where I felt that I wasn't, I mean, I was still feeling some pretty significant depression. I was still feeling some pretty significant anxiety, but they were at the point where they where I was aware of them and I was taking steps to improve them. And I could begin to think a little bit more clearly. I decided in January, 2021 to sit down and start writing uh, that I needed to figure out this spiritual piece that either I needed to leave God or I needed to stay with God. So I sat down and I just, I, I devoted about a half an hour of my work day, you know, the very first half hour to writing. In the first couple months, I just wrote about doubt you know, we have a lot of language in our church about how doubt is, is bad, how it's antithetical to faith, how we shouldn't doubt. And I, so when you begin to have significant doubts about God, it can feel pretty terrible and you can't really work through them because you feel so much shame for having those thoughts. I spent a lot of time thinking about doubt. And in this process, I read a lot of books um, that were really helpful. And a lot of them were actually outside of our faith tradition. Um, I really loved Brian McLaren's book, Faith After Doubt, that went through and talked about the stages of faith. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Jake Fowler's, James Fowler's book, where he talks about the stages of faith. Um, there were a lot of Catholics and Episcopalians and Anglicans and Buddhists that really helped me view faith and doubt and all of these things differently. And that was really helpful. I just needed to reframe how I was thinking. So I spent a few months thinking about doubt and got to a point where I, where I thought, you know, doubt can actually be a helpful thing. It, it can be a way that, it, that it, it can be something that exposes the assumptions that you have about your faith. It can help you uh, really see the framework that you've built up and it can help you take that framework down and build it up in a way that's closer to reality. And that's that are therefore closer to, to God. So I got to that point and then I started rethinking everything. <laughs> why, why I, I, when it was so hard for me to think that a loving God could go quiet. So for most of 2020, you know, God to me was, if it was the idea was if God existed, then God was terrible. So I started reading a lot into quietness and how, how, how is it that God could go quiet? Why would God be quiet? And I ran across Mother Teresa and the concept of the dark night of the soul, which is really common in Catholicism and broader Christianity. Um, I read Wendy Ulrich's book, uh, Let God Love You, and it was just wonderful. And she talked about how withdrawal is a natural part of, of, of relationships and how that can oftentimes happen with God. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It's just a natural part of the relationship. And after reading those things, it was helpful to reframe quietness, not necessarily as a way of God rebuking you or God being angry, but as a way that God could teach me something different. I mean, the whole concept of the dark night of the soul is that so often we attribute spiritual experiences to our righteousness 
pour our blessings to our righteousness. So we say something like, because I did these things, God then blessed me this way. Um, and that's problematic in a lot of ways. First off, it turns God into kind of this uh, vending machine, you know, transactional type of God where all I have to do is, you know, X and Y and then Z will happen. So it puts me in this relationship uh, where I control God rather than God being an independent actor. It also just is, is pretty arrogant because it says that, you know, with my righteousness, I get to dictate how God's going to uh, respond to me. And what the dark man of the soul does is it kind of takes all of that away and it makes you think, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Am I doing them because I want to be blessed? Am I doing them because I expect God to react in a certain way? Or am I doing them because they're inherently good? And so the dark night of the soul is this beautiful concept that's really one of refinement, that it helps you kind of strip away all your ideas of God that make God small and controllable, and instead gives you these ideas of God where he's larger and bigger than you would ever imagine. After I thought about quietness, I spent some time thinking about God's will and faith and what that meant, I, I realized that at the heart of some of my problems was this idea that God was transactional, that if I read the Book of Mormon and said the prayer, as the Book of Mormon says, you know, in Moroni, then God would, you know, reveal the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon to me. It was very much, you know, just a plug and play, A plus B equals C. Um, and I struggled with the idea of what would go in God's place if God wasn't transactional. Did I trust God enough where I could remove my needed control, which is completely illusory? <laughs> could I remove that need to control God and still trust in God? It took me a really long time to get to the point where I could feel that I could trust God. I uh, didn't for a really long time and sometimes still struggle with it. But I, I had this experience where I just felt that God was good and that I could trust God because God was good. And I could base my faith on God because God was good. So that was it. I decided that because God was good, because I felt that God was good, I could trust him and I could move forward and I could base my faith on God's goodness rather than on any particular way that God needs to respond to me. So I wrote for several months and ended up with a, a draft and I sent it into Desert Book. And at the end of those six months of writing, I got to a point where I had been able to write down the thoughts that were the most harmful and the most caustic. And I could take a look at them and question them and allow them to leave. And then I could bring in new thoughts and play with those a little bit and see if those were more helpful or hopeful. And if they were, I would keep them. And if not, I could, you know, allow them to leave. And so it was a really wonderful space for me to really work through things because I needed, I, I think for me, I just needed to think through things carefully. There were a lot of times when I felt like the only solution was for me to leave God entirely. But there was this kind of inexplicable connection. <laughs> I call it like a golden thread that just tied me to heaven, where it was just the sense that I shouldn't be making the decision quickly. That if I'm going to leave God, I need to be making that decision carefully and with a lot of thought. And when I really dug in and when I was open to reading things from a variety of faith traditions, I decided that I could stay with God. 
I could stay with God. Um, I'll say that the process, uh, I, I don't feel like I have anything figured out. <laughs> you know, I sit here today and if somebody says, well, how do you get answers from God on direct questions? Uh, my answer is I have no idea. So I, I just, I just don't know. But I do feel that God is good. I do feel that God is worth staying with. And I do feel that wrestling with God is a process that is worth it. It's worth it being in the arena. And sometimes I wonder why it has to be so hard because sometimes God can be really hard. But I also really love the Old Testament now. I didn't before. <laughs> I love the Old Testament now. And I love, you know, the story of Jacob wrestling with God and Jacob comes away limping, you know, and that was him engaging with God and he ended up with a limp. So sometimes we end up limping after we've engaged with God. But I wonder if that limping is what makes us more whole, more capable of understanding others, uh, more compassionate, more loving. It's just what we need to do. So uh, I realized in this process that there's some things that were really important. I am so incredibly grateful for the two women that reached out and talked and mocked with me. I think that we've got support groups for everything. You know, if you've had a miscarriage, if you're going through addiction, support groups for everything. And they were like my little support group for dealing with a faith crisis. And what was helpful with our little group is that, you know, everybody was trying to stay with God. You know, even though we were angry and upset, I think we were in, in the end, we were trying uh, to stay, trying to find, trying to find reasons to stay. And it was just really helpful to be in a space where you could express your feelings and your emotions freely. It's amazing how much power they have over you until you can actually say them out loud. And then, you know, once you've said them, once you've said your feelings, once you've said your, you know, said your, once you begin to really feel it, then you can, those things can leave. It was also really wonderful to have all these other resources in my life outside of our church. I did try to find some resources in our church at the very beginning about quietness. And um, a lot of the stuff I found wasn't helpful. Things like, you know, it's because you're, uh, you're not feeling the spirit because you're sinning or you're not, <laughs> you know, you're not, you know, tuned in to the spirit. You need to find the right frequency. You are, you know, just all, or you're depressed or something like that. And certainly there, that could be true. I mean, I'm not saying that that's not true, but none of those things uh, seemed true to me. I felt that God went quiet in the middle of uh, really sincere prayers about something really in a, in a space where I was trying to really connect with God and, and figure God out and God went quiet. Um, I wasn't feeling depression until after God went quiet. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that just didn't ring true. So it was, it was helpful to go to the Catholics and to the Episcopalians and the Anglicans and all these other faith traditions that have really robust ideas around um, God going quiet and have had those for hundreds of years. It, it, they just brought me some hope that I didn't have before. It, I've walked away from this experience. I feel like my faith, if I could, like in my mind, my faith before was this magnificent castle. Like I felt that I had faith in all of these principles and um, it was beautiful and it was big. And um, then the quietness came along and it completely demolished the whole thing. And I was in the rubble for a really, really long time trying to decide whether to stay in the rubble or whether to go just build something else in a completely different place. And 
right now, if I were to describe my faith, I would say that it's very small, um, but it's based, it's, it's smaller, but more, what would you say? It's stronger and more flexible than it was before. So I, I do feel very strongly that God is good, but I'm also have reached this idea of kind of flexibility about everything else that I realized that I can, I can trust in God, but there's just no way I can know everything about God. And, and there's just a lot of things I don't understand and that's totally okay. Um, in the book, I talk about how I felt that my faith looks now kind of like the Salt Lake temple, you know, they're doing this massive renovation where they're taking the temple and they've completely, you know, they're, they're switching up the foundation and they're putting in all of these um, you know, base isolators so that the temple can be more earthquake resistant. So, right, you know, when the temple was built back, you know, 150 years ago or so, they brought in all of these rocks and they put the foundation right into the ground. And um, from what we understand, they used the best engineering technologies they possibly could when they built the temples. It's remarkable. Um, but, you know, 100 years, later, 100 years later, the 100 years later, you know, when they went and they did the big seismic, they reviewed the temple, the presiding bishop went and looked at the temple and said, well, you know, it's, you know, although the pioneers did the best that they could, there's certainly some problems. And one of them is that the foundation is problematic and, you know, we live on a fault line. So we need to make sure that this temple is earthquake persistent and can last for the next 100 years or so. And so they, uh, what, what they did is that they dug out the foundation of the temple. And they dug all the way down to the bottom. They exposed it. They pushed some grout into all these rocks because, you know, they needed to be bound together. And then they put base isolators. And that's what they're doing right now, from what I understand, um, between the temple and the ground. And so when an earthquake comes, um, the movement of the earth will go through the base isolators and then it will go through the temple. And so what's interesting is that the temple's foundation is not becoming stiffer, you know, it's becoming stronger and it's also becoming more flexible so that when an earthquake comes, uh, the temple will, will move, but it will move in a controlled manner. And I feel like that's, that's kind of where my, my faith is. I've, my, I kind of had to expose the foundation and to take everything down that wasn't working. And now we're just working on something really small and hoping that it's, that it's flexible enough to move when it needs to move but strong enough to withstand some shaking in the future. Emily, um, this is really a beautiful story. Um, it's different than any story we've ever shared here. Um, I get surprised listeners sometimes because I think after this many podcasts, some of these stories will become redundant, but this is so different than any story I've heard. Maybe you are all feeling the same way and, um, want to reach out and thank Emily for her vulnerability. I kind of would like to share some thoughts and I want to get Emily talking. Um, it's interesting. This all started, um, a couple things were going on at the beginning. One is this was not a desire to not have a relationship with God. I think our listeners picked up on that. It was a deep desire that you to read the book of Mormon in a very short time and say, I'm going to get a testimony of the book of Mormon. And all this to me is, a, was about, wanting to connect with God versus some plan to separate yourself from God. And so I recognize that. I also recognize the Relief Society president that had some sort of impression to have you write some, to do a newsletter in the first place, and then to have you write something. 
and your courage to be vulnerable and perhaps her courage to support your vulnerability. Um, and then how that led to two sisters reaching out to you and knowing they would be safe. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability, as Renee Brown teaches us. And this whole story is because it started with vulnerability and a Release Society's impression. And I think of that, listeners, and what we can do in our circle of influence to allow vulnerability and to create vulnerability so that these beautiful stories can happen. I love some of the words you use, Emily, like abandoned, betrayal. Um, these would be logical words. I'm not clinically trained, but as I understand, just, you know, where is God in all of these key decisions in my life and and why is he silent? And I love your idea of holding on to memories and how that helps sustain you through this time. Um, I love your idea that God is we perhaps create culturally a transactional God, a plug and play. I love you use that term to create these sort of plug and play um, transactional formula type things. And I know we, you know, we taught and I served a mission listeners and way back then we had a flip chart where these steps of prayer. And I believe that all the steps of prayer, but the other side of the equation is less controllable and it's less transactional. And, I uh, believe God is there, but he may have a bigger picture than we understand at the time. I love Michael Wilcox listeners talks about a compass, a compass with two um, points. You know, it's not like a, it's that kind of a compass. And he talks about a fixed one sort of foot of the, the compass. Fixed leg. A yeah, fixed the fixed leg. leg in the moving leg. Uh-huh. And yeah, I love that. This is a great example that Emily's teaching us of, uh, I think you got a fixed leg in the church. And you've got this other leg that went way out there and just said, my path to understand this is I'm going, and I look at that of what you've done to connect with, and that's God's plan is these brings light and understanding to people of other faiths and other authors and other religious leaders. And our doctrine can support that. <laughs> and so this is a practical example of, you know, the people you rec- the books you read, the Dark Night of the Soul, Mother Teresa, Brian McClendon, or if I'm saying McLaren. This, yeah, McLaren. Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. And Faith After Doubt. And just, you know, this is a beautiful story of just, I am going to do kind of the hard, scary work to consider seeing a therapist. Um, I'm, I could just stay in this Dark Night of the Soul, but I'm going to kind of do what I can do. Because I think sometimes that's hard for us to sort of break out of the box and say, okay, I'll go see the therapist. I'll go read a book. Um, I'll go kind of do kind of the hard work. And sometimes we have to look internal to be able to do the things we need to do. So I think this is a one of the you know most remarkable chapters of your life. And I love um just I'm just looking at the notes here. Um I love the word, I love your analogy of the temple. Um and you've used flexibility a couple times in the podcast, and then bringing that in the analogy of the temple and this firm, unflexible foundation that's terrific. And for some Latter-day Saints, that's, that's all they need. And I don't mean that in a negative way, or it's like less authentic, but it's their best path forward. But other Latter-day Saints, um, I'm kind of in that same camp, need a flexible foundation and sort of a new model to go forward with my belief in God and my commitment to the church that's different. And we don't talk about those as much. So that's why I think your story will resonate with a lot of people. 
um, because it's the road they're walking to, Emily, and they need um, your experience and the principles you're teaching. So I thought that was just terrific. So those are some of my thoughts, listeners. Um, I'll turn it back to just Emily to keep sharing her story. Well, as you talked about the transactional God, I think that being uh, being a, I, I think that it's okay to be transactional when we're a little bit younger in our faith. And in fact, when we're teaching our kids, that's oftentimes how we start. You know, if you do this, then God will do this. Um, but Steve Young wrote a book. It's called The Law of Love. It was published, I believe, last year, late last year. And or maybe it's early this year, but anyway, he talks about how we have kind of this transactional path and then we have the finishing track, transactional track and the finishing track and how it's really important that we start on the transactional track because that's how we learn. But then we need to move to the finishing track um, in our faith. And the, the finishing track is this, you know, he talks about how it's loving and allowing God to be God and um, loving people with no expectation of anything in return. And I think that that's, been a really important concept for me to apply to God, you know, that there's a lot of things that are good to do for their own sake, not because I want something from God, not because I want something from others, but they're just good to do for their own sake. And um, that that's the finishing track, I guess, um, where you're just kind of releasing, releasing control with that. Um, my Relief Society president, like you mentioned, was really remarkable. And because she knew, she knew, you know, what I was experiencing and yet she trusted me to share. And I think that that's really just awesome. <laughs> There's no other way of putting it. It's just awesome. Um, we were, we didn't have church for, you know, from about March of 2020 to, I think we started back again in, in November or October is when we started having really society again. And, um, church and the, the, everything got shut down right about the time when I was, really, I mean, church was really painful for me. Sundays were really, really painful for me because they were, they highlighted the chasm between where I used to be, you know, where I loved church, you know, God was good. This was a wonderful and amazing experience and where I was then, which was God was horrible. And I didn't know if there was any hope that I could ever believe again. I didn't want to hope it was too painful. I had risked, I'd been, I, I had tried to connect with God and I had completely failed and ended up feeling worse than I ever had. So anyway, I was in this space where I was about ready to just kind of throw everything in. And so in a lot of ways, um, not having church for those few months and being able to step back for a little while was, I think, good in some ways. Um, because then I didn't go to church and feel like I was uh, awful <laughs> all the time. Um but when I did come back, I started teaching again in November, and I, I really credit my really society president for it. Even though she knew I was struggling, she she allowed me to to teach, and I was pretty committed to teaching lessons that were genuine and authentic. So I needed to get myself to a spot where I could actually teach that. And so one of the first lessons that I was asked to teach was um, my least favorite conference talk from the prior conference, and it was on. Uh, be of good cheer. And I was like, there's just, I can't be, of, I am not of good cheer. I am deeply depressed. <laughs> there's just absolutely no way I can get up and release society and tell people to be of good cheer. Uh, that's terrible. And if somebody tells me that I need to be happy, I'm just going to punch them in the face because that's about how I feel. So um, what was great about having that assignment though, was that I could go and see, is figure out like how in the world can I teach this lesson in a way that's 
that would be uplifting to the people in the room and also true to what I'm experiencing right now. And I talked to a few people, looked at my concordance and realized that be of good cheer in the modern translation is often translated as to have courage. And I thought, you know, I can talk about having courage. I mean, I, I can, I can talk about that. I can't talk about being happy. Uh, I can talk about having courage. And so I went into really study and then told the sisters that I, um, it's really struggling because I was feeling some significant depression, but that this scripture could be interpreted as, you know, have courage for I have overcome the world. And then talked about how that applied in their lives and in the scriptures. And there's something really beautiful about creating spaces where people can feel like they can share, where they can be vulnerable. Um, you know, and I, I, our Relief Society is really excellent. The other teacher was so good at that also, just creating spaces where people could feel like they they were okay wherever they were on their faith journey they were absolutely okay and i i absolutely love that and then you talked about the the flexible foundation and i really really love um so brian mclaren's faith after doubt talks about faith stages and james fowler um has a book called stages of faith that also talks about faith stages and really it's you're when you talk when you look at stages of faith they often start with this more kind of rigid transactional way of viewing faith, um, where you look at external authority. And then, you know, if you progress, not everybody progresses through faith stages. A lot of folks stop, you know, at some point. Um, but as you progress, you become more and more um, wanting internal authority instead of external authority. And uh, you, you become more, you, you question a lot more. Um, you're a lot less transactional. And Brian McLaren talks about the movement from um, you start in simplicity and, and after simplicity, you move to complexity and then you move to perplexity and then you move to harmony. And it's this process of your faith is simple and straightforward. And then your faith becomes a little bit more complicated, but you feel that if you can do the right things and you can still get the results you want. And then you move to a space where nothing makes sense at all. Everything is broken down. And then you move to a space where you can begin to look at things a little bit more broadly and carefully and flexibly. And I, I just loved those faith stages because they helped me see doubt as a normal part of the life of faith. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something that's deviant. It can be a normal part of the life of faith that actually makes faith stronger. So I've been just really grateful. I um, sent this book into Desert Book in, uh, what is it? I went to the, sent it into the slush pile. Um, they had like just an online submission for it in, in September of 2021. And thought, you know, whatever happens, happens. I mean, I think that for me, getting to a point where I could open up and talk to people and not feel so incredibly alone and defective was hugely helpful in the healing process. All those hours I spent walking uh, with those two women. And then, uh, then there were several other friends that, that came to my aid and, and walked with me and talked with me. It was hugely helpful to have those people in my life. And I am so appreciative for them. So I sent it in and thought, well, you know, maybe, who knows? Who knows if Desert Book will pick it up? And then they called me in December of 2021 and said that they were interested in it. And then in the first you know, five months of 2022, I had to go through a process of being approved through multiple committees. But now that it's been out, it's been remarkable. The more that I talk about my experience, it is amazing to me how many people will say, I have felt the same thing. 
I have felt the same thing. And I think that there's just a huge community of people out there who feel alone and isolated, but their neighbor might be experiencing the same exact thing that they're experiencing, but we're not talking about it. So I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful the books out there. I um, have been telling people, they've asked me how I've been feeling about it. And I say that I'm excited and completely nauseous about the whole thing. Um, because this is not anything I ever expected I would do. But I, I hope that it can at least be the beginning of a conversation uh, where we can maybe be a, bit, a little bit more open about where our faith is. Maybe those of us who aren't struggling with our faith can be a little bit more understanding to those who are. And hopefully it can create some recognition that faith journeys look very different for all sorts of people. And it's okay. You know, I, I really do think that you, see that you have to trust in the journey. And some people are going to have a faith crisis that lasts a couple months or maybe a couple weeks. Some folks, it might be a couple of years. Um, everybody's faith journey looks different and they're going to need different resources and different help. Um, but I really have latched on to this idea from Wendy Ulrich that God can redeem anything. God can redeem anything. And that means that he can redeem my faith journey and your faith journey and my neighbor's faith journey. And even though they might look very different and to outs, you know, people who are looking in, it might be very scary. You know, it might be really scary if you see a friend or a family member who is really questioning God and questioning the church. Um, but if I can just hold on to God, can redeem anything? It gives us a little bit more hope and also a little bit of a broader perspective that, you know, it doesn't end here. It, you know, we don't need to have everything figured out this minute. I can sit with someone who's really struggling and um, just listen for a while. I don't have to figure out their faith crisis right now. I don't have to point out all the flaws in their thinking. I can just sit with them and listen to their concerns and walk with them if they need me to walk with them. And God can make things turn out to their good and God can redeem their experiences. Emily, you're a really gifted communicator. Um, and author, I love that you've taken all of your um, professional work and expertise you've developed um, and just your ability to communicate in a very thoughtful, effective way, which I assume partly comes through your professional work and just the gifts that God's given you from day one. And then um, this personal experience to give words um, and thoughts and real experiences to help better understand this space. Um, listeners, there's just a lot of parts of this podcast that. Uh, really moving to me. Um, I wrote down, if I can read my own writing, I can't, darn it. <laughs> Doubt <laughs> as, a, as a normal part of life of faith. I can read my writing. What a wonderful phrase. Doubt is a normal part of a life of faith. I think that's what it is. I still can't read my writing. Um, I love that, where you just normalize doubt and how we recognize in our culture that perhaps that isn't a word we're comfortable with or we would look at it in a positive way. And you've made that a completely positive thing. You've also made thoughts a positive thing back in your first segment where you allowed yourself to have those thoughts, but then you allowed them to leave. And you yeah. learned to replace them with different thoughts. And maybe you don't know, and maybe a therapist did that, but I think we sometimes get trapped in our thoughts. But you seem to allow them to sit there for a little bit. Um, even intrusive thoughts that weren't helpful, but then maybe that helped allow them to leave. So I love yeah, that. You, you're right. I think you do have to sit with them, especially the hard ones, because if you don't allow yourself to feel it and really kind of dig into it, then they're just going to stay. 
you know, whatever you, what is it, the line, whatever you suppress gets bigger, or I can't even remember it. There's some punchy yeah. line about that. Yeah. Um, so you really do have to sit with them and acknowledge them. And then once they've been acknowledged, you know, then you can let them go, but you've got to, you've got to spend time with them. Talk about, you've kind of framed this up as, um, I'm going to leave God and stay with God. And some people are framing up their journey as, am I going to stay in the church or leave the church? And, um, were these two different things or was this really the same thing? I'm either going to stay in the God, therefore I'm going to stay in the church or I'm going to leave both. So just talk a little bit to listeners that how you're navigating those two circles or if they're the same circle. So to me, they're not the same circle. So the church is something that's separate from God. So certainly we believe that God runs our church, but the church is not God. God is not the church. So to me, I, um, in, in my mind, the I could stay with the church if God was good. I could not stay with the church if God wasn't good. So to me, the church was kind of irrelevant. <laughs> you know, okay. it wasn't, it, it all came down to this person who is running the church? Is this person worthy of my worshiping? Does this person exist? Is this per- is this a person or being that I want to be around and be part of? So it really came down to the church. There was, or excuse me, came down to God. There was a great talk. I don't know if you attended the Faith Matters Conference this summer, Richard. I did, but there some was a of great, them. And you yeah, should, so you the, should speak the, there. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. Thank you. Um, there was a talk by Richard or not, um, Jared Halverson, and yes. he put up this this diagram, do you remember? And that one is excellent. They put it up online. It's from don't let a good faith crisis go to waste. Such a good doc. I just can't emphasize how amazing that one was, but he put up a little diagram where he talked about, you know, when I have students that come in and talk with me, I ask them, where's your faith? What are you struggling with? And he put up this triangle. The top of the triangle is might have to correct me, Richard, if I'm remembering it incorrectly, but it was something like, you know, is it, is it policies? Is it history? The next one down was like the book of Mormon. The next one down was Joseph Smith. Um, and then like the bot, and then I can't remember what came after that, but the very bottom was God. And he said, how far down do the cracks go? Are the cracks small? Are they like on policies or are the cracks deep, you know, as to God? And my cracks went all the way down to God. Sounds like <laughs> you know, it, yeah. All the way down to God. So um, it really was for me a question of, you know, the church, the, the church uh, in my mind, you know, it, it was, you know, in my 20s, it became very clear to me that the church was not God. They're two completely separate entities and um, certainly one's influenced by the other, but they're, they're completely separate. But no church was worth it if God was not worth it. And so the question for me really was, is God worth it? Does God exist and is God worth it? And then I love the way you frame that up. You're very clear in your answer. And I agree. I, I think what I'm hearing you say is once you knew God was worth it, um, then your desire to stay in the church was just a normal next step or you never even considered, you just had to answer that question. And the second question would be an automatic. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, of course, have looked and been involved in other um, faith traditions and I love them all. Um, but this is the church is, was kind of my home. It was my faith tradition. And um, a lot of our theology, I think, is beautiful and wonderful and different. Um, and I like it. And so if God was good, then this is the church I would be in. If God was not good, then there was no church to be in. <laughs> no reason to 
be in church at all. Uh, more things you'd like to share that just are on your mind or in your heart or share, keep sharing. <laughs> oh, thank you, Richard. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's, if there's anything else. I, I've just been, it, it was such a surprisingly hard experience for me. You know, I thought that people who have faith crises, it was just kind of a crazy, excuse me, were just exaggerating how hard it was, um, that it was a, a fad. <laughs> And then I had one and it was incredibly difficult. Um, it was, I, I read this book by Sarah Batchelard and it's fantastic. And it's called experiencing God in a time of crisis. And she talks about how we all build these frameworks. You know, we build these frameworks to explain our lives. These are the stories that we tell about our lives. This is how we make sense of our lives and what a crisis does. That's different than just having a hard experience is that a crisis collapses all those frameworks. And so you're grieving not only, you know, this hard experience that you've had that's collapsed the framework, but you're grieving this loss of this story that you've told your whole life, the story that has explained everything. And I think that when, you know, I just recently read this book about a month or so ago, and I thought that is one, that is a really good explanation of why a faith crisis is so hard. Because the, the way that you've, Told, the story that you've told about your life is suddenly gone. The way that you understand reality, gone. And it is incredibly painful. It is incredibly painful. So I have learned to, uh, to, never, to never think that other people's crises and experiences are hard because then you get them. Um, because it really was incredibly challenging to, to go through. And so, you know, if anybody is, is experiencing that, it is, it is helpful to get some help and to talk with people and to work through it because it is such an incredibly hard experience. If you went back to 2017 or, and sort of had a choice, you could go down the road of having a firm, uh, whatever, a fixed, well, a flexible foundation on one side, which you have now, or your prior foundation or however you felt, would you have because this is painful. Would you go, if you could redo that decision, I guess it wasn't your decision. It was sort of God's decision for you. What would you do? <laughs> so Richard, to be honest, I always cringed a little bit when people would get up in church and they'd say, I am thankful for my trials, but I actually would have, I, I am grateful for it. Um, I don't think I would ever choose it if I were back. Um, I don't think I would have chosen it, but I feel coming out of it that I am lucky to have had the chance to really take a careful look at my faith and to realize all of these invisible frameworks that I had that I didn't, I didn't realize they were there until my reality kind of headlong flung into them and they completely collapsed. It was, it's resulted in a faith, not only that's more flexible, but there's this idea of being introduced to this community of, of suffering of people who struggle. And I, I didn't feel like I was part of that community before. And I still probably am not, but just the idea of there's a whole group of people that don't feel like they belong. And, uh, and it's, it's humbling to, to feel that way. And then to then go back. And I, I mean, I've become far more interested in um, the members of our church who are part of the LGBTQ plus community or black members of our church, you know, to experience the 
whose ancestors experienced the the priesthood ban, you know, and the priesthood temple ban, and just all these people that feel like they may not have belonged or don't belong right now. It's just, it just feels more open. It feels more compassionate. It just, and it just is, it's, it just feels more flexible in a way where I can, I feel like I can accept maybe who knows I can accept more of what God is willing to give me. And I'm just in a space where I can say, no, I can accept what God is willing to give me. And I, I remember I got to a point you know, I don't, I don't feel like now that everything is gone. Like, I don't feel like uh, the spirit is gone. I do feel the spirit once in a while. And that's, that's wonderful. That's nice. Um, But I got to a point where I realized that if God was quiet forever, and if that was God's will, then I could accept it. And there's something really wonderful about getting to a stage of acceptance of God's will, even if it's something that you don't necessarily want. So if I were to go back, I would say, yes, take the harder path because the harder path is the better path. I thought you might answer it that way. (laughs) And I love the way you said, even if God continues to be um, quiet, that I accept that. That's sort of empowering in a way, but it doesn't mean it has to happen. But it maybe is for some accepting that that's the reality of the relation with God for now and maybe for the rest of their life, that that could be a little fearful, but maybe that's accepting um, that you can still move forward. I love this really good podcast. One of the things you said in the beginning of the second segment is you um, you talked about, I can control my courage, but I may not be able to control my happiness. And I wrote two circles, one happy things. I'm uncomfortable when people say, just choose to be happy because I've had times in my life where that choice was out of my control and it just made me feel bad and right. it made me feel shame. But I've always felt like having peace, um, some may debate me on this, or having courage are in my control. Um, and so I think it's for some of us, we need to let go of some things and be able to accept other things. So I love the courage you felt you could control. And I see manifestations of that in just your journey. I mean, reaching out to books and just resources and being open to reading things outside of our faith tradition that I think you were led to. So your story, I think, teaches principles to help all of us. Um, I love the point about community and that we need to normalize um, people that needing flexible foundations. Um, I met with a BYU professor and in the course, just in lunch and in the course of this conversation, the professor was talking about just the large amount of BYU students. I can't remember the percentage. It was not It was not a majority of her students, but a minority, a significant more minority were in what we were calling a faith crisis. And she said something interesting. They're, you know, they're looking for a new model to go forward because their prior model didn't work or mm-hmm. no longer works after a period of time. And not all need a new model, but you introduce um, a new model based on, I think, great gospel principles to be able to move forward that will resonate with some. It resonates with me. And most of us that adopt a new model um, don't ever go back to the old model. We can't. The genie's out of the bag, and you probably, you may feel that way. So Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think you generally don't go back to the old model. I think you include all the good things that you learned before, and then you transcend the limitations of it and you create something that's even more true. And I 
think at that point, I, I know I, I, I'm at a point where I'm like, you know what, I can't possess these models or these ideas. I have to be willing to let them go in the future if they're not working then. I think and that's good. so it just helps me maybe jump from hopefully model to model until I can find something that's closer to reality, um, closer to what God would have me realize and, and know. Um, but yeah, I just love her idea how the people are looking for a new model. I, I know I was. Uh, I think that it was really helpful in my learning and in my healing to have these new ways of looking at faith and doubt and quietness. That's what I needed. I just needed fresher uh, perspectives, different perspectives than what were being offered. And those made all the difference. Uh, listeners, we haven't. We, I read this quote, but I haven't read it like in 10 episodes, but I'll read it because I just thought of it thinking of Emily. It's the wounded healer. And I don't know if Emily feels herself wounded. I don't want to put words into her story, but the principle that Henry Noren teaches, the um, Noren teaches that a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. So you're the, you are wounded and you're a healer. And this has been a brutal road that you didn't say, okay, I want to go down this road. You were intentionally trying just to, you know, this is the road you went through because you were trying to do the right thing. But now, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> your 2018 self that was going to spend, that did spend the last few months reading the Book of Mormon, did not expect this book. If I met you at the end of 2018 and said, you're going to write a book about divine quietness that'll be at Desert Book in 2013. And I'm looking at Amazon. It's the number one, number two new release in the church. It's obviously the Desert Book people knew that this book is needed in our faith community and um, supported you in getting it published. But you're the wounded healer, Emily, and you're brave and authentic and bring forth principles to help others that are walking this road. And maybe that's one of the greatest um, blessings of your own experiences it is you can help others and you're already doing that and and this book um, allows that to continue to happen and that's a vote that's a I say that for Emily but I say that for all of us as listeners to this podcast that maybe our wounding experiences help us to vulnerable as we appropriately share them then we're able to help others and maybe there's great satisfaction as our experiences and our perspectives and things we learned in our dark night of the soul experiences are able to help others that need not just theoretical, but practical real world, real life experiences. So listeners, I'm going to turn it back to Emily for final comments, but I'll just say I'm in the show notes. We'll link to the book divine quietness. We'll link to the desert desert book and the Amazon link. Um, there's a lot of other good books that Emily's uh, mentioned um, you might enjoy reading some of those. I've read some of those. They're terrific books, but I'll turn it back to you, Emily, for any last comments. Oh, thank you, Richard. And it's such an honor to um, have you say that I'm a wounded healer. That's just a really, it was incredibly beautiful and wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I love, I'm trying to find it, but I, I love, Lauren Winner is one of my favorite writers. And she wrote a book called Still, uh, S-T-I-L-L, Notes on a Midlife Faith Crisis. And I, I love that book. It was one of the first books I read that helped me feel like I was, like somebody understood what I was feeling. 
And she tells a story in there about a comment a father made to his daughter um, when she was going through confirmation. Confirmation is what happens in um, a lot of other Christian churches. It happens generally around 12. And it's when generally the the 12-year-old is making a mature um, commitment to their faith. And the the daughter, her name was Julian, was talking to her father, who happened to be the pastor of their church. And she expressed doubts about whether she could actually be confirmed. And she didn't know if she could believe, if she could say that she would believe in this, in this forever, if she could believe in God forever. And I love what her father told her. He said, what you promise when you are confirmed is not that you will believe this forever. What you promise when you are confirmed is that that is the story that you will wrestle with forever. I just love this idea of, of wrestling that sometimes we hold up as pinnacles of our faith. You know, people who are say, oh, man, they have never had a doubt in their lives. Um, they're, they're strong, even though they've gone through all these things. They're just you know, these stalwart members. And I am so thrilled for those people. I think we need those people in our church. But there is so much worth in wrestling with God and being willing to have mud on your face and be in the arena and try your hardest and knowing that, you know, even if you have some moments or some times where you are really struggling with your belief, if you can hold an intention to wrestle, that's amazing. And that's hugely helpful. And I think God can do a lot, even with, even if the only thing that you can give God is an intention to wrestle, just a little, little tiny bit of a desire. God can do so much with that. So anyway, thank you so much, Richard, for having me on. You're so kind and create such a beautiful space where people can feel like they can belong and that you have so so many, so many people from so many different walks of life and so many different stories. And we can all listen to those and, and feel uplifted because guess what? You know, it's just amazing to hear so many different stories and realize that we can all belong to the family of God. Thank you, Emily Robinson Adams. I'm deeply moved by your story and your insights. And just thank you for your kindness to me and willingness to share your story. So mm-hmm. listeners, this is um, Richard Osler and Emily Adams signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.